At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Wildwood Community Church, I am delighted to be with you. It's really fun to be with your pastors and, and a privilege to be part of this missions conference. You're listening to a very good friend of mine just now. And what I want to share this morning, in a way, is a backdrop to what he was sharing feet on the ground and in a major city in Europe. Trinity and the purpose of life. That is a deeper call to mission. Well, we're living in an interesting time, a time of closure for many, like Billy Graham, who passed away. I think of Brother Andrew. How many of you have heard of Brother Andrew, God's smuggler? May I see your hands? Yeah, not very many of you, a few. A, a Dutch rebellious kid who uh, then was inscripted into the Dutch army was involved in, you'd say, the killing of Indonesian villagers as he was wounded and reading his Bible came to Christ. After that, he began to smuggle Bibles into what was then the Soviet Union behind the so-called Iron Curtain, and so he became known as God's smuggler, 10 million copies of that particular book. But he founded a group called Open Doors, which monitors persecution of believers around the world. So when you go to a major news outlet, Christianity Today, but many secular ones as well, it's the data from Open Doors that's being given to us. And it's estimated that one in seven Christians on the earth today are in very persecuted conditions where there is oppression around them and often great peril should they be found out as a Christian. Brother Andrew died a little over, a little less than two years ago. He is one. There's another, and that is George Verwer with uh, the founder of Operation Mobilization, uh, George Verwer also a rebellious teenage kid and at a Madison Square Gardens crusade with Billy Graham, Jack Wurtson, and some others came to Christ, was on fire for the Lord after that. Well, Operation Mobilization has spread around the world. They have a, a major ship, Dulos, another Logos, both of them number two, and uh, they've ministered to nearly five million visitors that come on board with the doctors and clinics and all that they have, but also the, the wide-open evangelism that they often have. They are in 147 countries. We could talk about others. Lauren Cunningham, founder of Youth with a Mission, a group I went out with as well, died four months ago. But behind all of this is a deeper call to mission. And often we don't think about this. For many, that deeper why is, is not clear. I wouldn't say it's perhaps missing, but it's undefined in their lives. And that was, a, that was true with me. I mean, there's many levels of understanding the gospel. And of course, even as a brand new believer, we go out and share with somebody else and, and there's a sense of God ministering in our life and we feel, we feel wonderful. There's, there, even if we're rejected, Lord, I've obeyed you. I did what you called me to do. And there's that sense of being filled up by God's presence. So many of us go forth like this. Uh, this was my way of saying it. I'm lost. I was. And now, by God's grace, as we've sung in these songs, through the cross, through the blood of Christ, I'm reconciled to God. I am now his child. I'm adopted. And therefore, I have a job to do, to talk with those who do not know the Lord, whether they're sophisticated 
or whether, whether they're primitive. I have a job to do. And I would say in some ways, this is a missions conference, that in itself is enough. Uh, many go out into the world and that's their motivation and God uses and blesses them as George Verwer, as uh, Brother Andrew. But there's something behind all of this too, behind the experiential reality of missions and the joy that's sometimes there, suffering at other times. But there's a greater conceptual weight that I want to talk about today. It's a, what I call a theological ballast of missions, and sometimes that's lacking around Urbana and other major missions conferences. And as I talk with those there, often this is indeed lacking. The early church, as we come from the cross and the apostles going out and into the second and third generation, realized that Christian experience, of which they had a plenty, was not enough because bigger matters were at at the fore. That is, who is God? The nature of existence itself. And as they step into the philosophic world, as Paul did in Athens, and as they begin to penetrate into society, the reality of the big questions of life came to the fore. That's what I want to talk about tonight. But they were in the midst of what we'd say are lots of different religions as we are today. They were in the midst of emperor worship, who kind of trumped all of that. Uh, you can worship Artemis or whoever else you want to, but emperor, he gets his peace as well. Lots of sophisticated philosophies, cultural bias, if not hatred, toward Christians. That's why Nero had so many Christians crucified when Rome caught on fire and he blamed them. But I would say this isn't unlike our day. As I just mentioned with Open Doors Ministries and the persecution around the world. The church was impelled to articulate more so than ever before what's behind all of this. And that brought them back with Athanagoras and uh, uh, Theophilus and then Irenaeus and others to a doctrine that became known as the Trinity. Trios was the Greek. Trinitas was Tertullian's word in the Latin, they began to set forth what came to be known as orthodoxy. Ortho means correct, and doxy means teaching or understanding or belief. So right thinking about the one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ways that never had been expressed in that way and yet captured the biblical portrait of who God is. So I'm putting a lot of this on the screen because I want you to get it, hearing and seeing together help a little bit. They understood, as you and I must understand, that everything finally spirals out of our understanding of God. Often when I talk with people of other religions or maybe no religion at all, describe your God. What is, what is this God like? Is it a he, a she, a it? Is it a force? And out of that, understanding of God, who we'd have to say, if he's really God, he's the infinite one who, who created this almost infinite universe with its uh, hundreds of thousands of galaxies. We're just in one huge one called the, the uh, actually a middle-sized one, the Milky Way, but, but the trillions and trillions of stars that scientists today tell us are more numerous than the sands on the sea and in all the earth. And yet, here is this infinite God who made himself known on this little planet, created us in his image for reason. Understanding that, understanding God and what's been going on is the fundamental reality of all existence. 
of all time and space, all realms of existence. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. I love this. Edwards considered the first American intellectual, go back, going back to the beginning and mid, middle of uh, the 18th century, Edwards. Yale has, the University of Yale, published a massive set of volumes of his writings in science and many other areas, but theology. And this is his heart, quoting him. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty, from whom all is perfectly derived and on whom all is most absolutely and perfectly dependent. That's Jonathan Edwards. He got it. Another one that put it more recently, uh, also passed away now, but A.W. Tozer. I love what he says because it's simple. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You realize that? What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let's think a little deeper. You may want to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. I'll talk about John a little before that as we continue on, but John chapter 20 is right after the resurrection. I'll get into it in a minute. We are looking at this portion of the Gospel of John um, at the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. Jesus is teaching these disciples hours before the crucifixion. He's teaching his disciples. Some have said he's unloading the truck uh, as they are beginning to hear things that are utterly, utterly astonishing. Um, chapter 17 is his high priestly prayer. We'll talk about it again as well. But in these five chapters, Jesus repeatedly promises them his peace, his joy. He washes their feet. Uh, they'll love, by their love, they'll, they'll be known as Christians. We sing that sometimes, don't we? This is the most Trinitarian passage John 13 to 17, really, in all the Bible. Uh, much could be said. In these incredible passages, Jesus not only talks about how he will ask the Father and the Father will send the Holy Spirit, and then we will, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. He says, you can ask the Father anything in my name, and he will do it. And then he says, John 14, uh, you can ask me anything, and I will do it. What? Jesus, you're, you're, you're human, you're Messiah. We can ask you anything and you will do it. And it goes on, promising the Holy Spirit and on from there. So in the midst of all of this, and he's encouraging their joy and all the rest, he's also, as elsewhere in the Gospels, saying, but I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed. And even as he's explained until the end of chapter 16, all of this and the disciples say, now you're speaking clearly. Now we get it. Now we understand. And Jesus says, do you really understand? I tell you, within a few hours, you'll all abandon me. You'll leave me alone and escape. And they did in the garden. Of course, all this kind of later made clear in their minds. But the Father, he will not abandon me. And then in his high priestly prayer, chapter 17 of John, he talks about glorifying the Father and asks that the Father would glorify him anew with the glory he ever had with the Father from before the world began. This co-equality and yet distinction between the two. So here in these chapters, the most Trinitarian passage in all the Bible, um, our Lord yet says he's going to die. They just 
They just couldn't put up. Uh, they didn't, that was beyond them. Here, here he's coming to Jerusalem with the throngs and the hosannas and all the rest. And yet, then he begins to pray for them. One other thing I want to touch on here as John then relates the crucifix, the trial and the crucifixion, the betrayal by Judas, etc. But in the midst of all of that, following the theme really of John that Jesus is indeed the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, he flips back to Zechariah chapter 12. And Zechariah, with this chapter, majestic chapter, God's created the universe and he's controlled history. And now the nations are coming against Israel, something that may portend of our future not long from now. And here is Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And this is one of the most astonishing texts in the Old Testament. John picks it up and quotes it as Jesus is on the cross. <clears throat> they will look on me. This is God speaking the one they have pierced. Well, how do you pierce God the Father? And they will mourn for him, shifts from first person to third, as one mourns for an only child, only begotten one, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. These are phrases directly applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Wow. So this one on the cross this one on the cross is God, God giving his life for the world. In the midst of that high priestly prayer, jumping back to John 17 for just a moment, he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, this is before the, you know, before the garden, so I'm sure the disciples sometimes were sleepy, but... Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then as you've sent me, there's the word as truth, sent me. Apostello is the Greek term for send. Uh, the sent ones is what apostles means. Into the world. And world in Johannine theology is this, this domain of really Satan. God so loved the world because it's actually his and the people of the world are his. But Satan is the the one who is the dominant force that deceives the nations in all of this. As you, Father, have sent me, Christ the Son, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Talking of the disciples now. And then he goes on to pray for the ones that believe because of the disciples. That is, you and me. After the resurrection, again, Jesus comes to the disciples. It's very interesting that you can step into the text if, if you want to with me, but Jesus rises from the dead. The tomb is open. And in John's account, Mary Magdalene is the first one that arrives at that tomb, and it's open, and it must be almost dark, just barely at dawn, and she's shocked and doesn't know what to do, and nobody's there. Soldiers are gone. They must have been terrified, as we understand elsewhere. And she ran finally to tell the disciples, and some believed, and others, well... Peter and John went running back to the tomb, and there it was, open stone, this huge stone rolled away. And they look in, and nobody's there, and yet the, the grave's clothes that were wrapped around Jesus seemed to like the body disappeared, but the clothes are still, still like there's a wrapped person that's gone. They didn't know what to believe. John says, well, he believed, but of course he didn't believe very much. 
And they went back to tell the other disciples. During this time, then, Mary Magdalene comes back to the tomb. You'll remember the story. Because she looks into the tomb, and now at the two ends of where the clothes are still raveled, she sees two men dressed in white, and, and, and she's weeping. And they say, why are you weeping? Where have you taken him? If you, tell me where you've taken him, and I will go get him. Dear Mary Magdalene. Well, she ran back to tell the disciples again, and yet Jesus doesn't appear to anyone else. For most of that day, you've got two disciples on the road to Emmaus later in the afternoon. He comes to the disciples in our text at night. Chapter 20, verses 19 down through, at this point, 20, 22. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he'd shown his side, his hands in his side, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, verse 21, here's our text. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed, English adds on them, he breathed and said, receive, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. So, bracketing our Lord's death and resurrection are the two commands to the apostles, but now to us as well. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. The term missio dei is simply the Latin for the mission of God. Our theme really this morning is this. As the Missio Dei is the expression of who God is as he sends forth the Son and the Spirit. Even in the second century, Irenaeus said these are the two hands of God that go forth from our Lord to draw sinful humanity to himself. That expression of who God is is passed on to us. Missio Dei becomes, this is really key, the essential expression of faith in the life of the believer it becomes ours. Let's jump back a little bit, though. Two historic meanings to this Missio Dei. Through most of history, it was understood the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. So it is the mission of God into the world in his, mis- in his mercy to us. But when we get to the beginning of the missionary movement around 1900, meaning among evangelicals and among Protestants as people were beginning to go into the world and big missions conferences were then beginning to occur, Missio Dei was increasingly adopted to speak of the mission imperative for all believers. The mission of God becomes our mission as well. But let's go back and reflect a little bit more. Most people say they believe in the Trinity. I'm sure most of you would say that. And yet, what does that mean? How does that work out? Of those who say they believe in the Trinity, according to recent polls through Barna and uh, Lifeway and others, About 70% aren't even sure that the Holy Spirit is a person. They kind of think he's a force instead, or at least they're not sure on that issue. Well, God. Let's go there for a moment. John begins his epistle, or his gospel, as you well know, with the famous words of John 1.1. In the beginning, which takes us right back to Genesis in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. Well, what kind of doublespeak is this? What does that mean? You mean God, the Father, is really the Son? But then you see, even in verse 2 and on from there, no, the Logos Son Christ is distinct from the Father. But all that the Father is as God is also in the Son. The Word was God. All the Father is in his essence and in infinite reality, so is the Logos, who then comes into our world, comes into the darkness, comes to his own, and his own do not receive him. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son, that that word become flesh, is fully, fully God, yet also now assuming a human nature. Talk about a hypostatic union. This one person of Christ is yet both God and man. We see most of the humanity in the Gospels, don't we? But John's prologue, verses 1 through 18, fill it out for us. The story I'm going to tell you with Philip and Nathaniel and others that follows all of this in the rest of chapter 1 starts with this understanding of the big picture, which is why we're looking at this today. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, He has made him known. Actually, the Greek goes even deeper, and I think the English Standard Version, the ESV, gets it even better. No one has ever seen God but the the one and only God, that is the Son, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. That's astonishing language. So that's beginning to reveal something of our God. And as we go through the New Testament, we find that there's about 130 passages that include Father, Son, Spirit, or with other words, Christ, Advocate, Dove, God. But, and some of these have multiple mentions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is quite astonishing. We read over those and rarely think Trinity as we look at all of this. But what does this reveal then about God? Well, as we look further and further and deeper and deeper, the triune God is the eternally self-giving God. He sends the Son, he sends the Spirit. He gives creation existence, and he cares about this world. Now, think of how absolutely different that is from Islam. With Allah, distant, he doesn't even have fellowship with humankind. He doesn't touch us. He sends out some rules. Gabriel comes down with the Quran. God speaks Arabic. It's eternally uh, God's word, and on from that. When you start contrasting the Christian vision of the Trinitarian God, it is astonishing. We see the Father loves the Son 22 times, in fact, the New Testament says that. And the Son loves the Father. Sometimes the Son says that, but usually he proves it by his obedience, that he lays down his life for the sheep. The Holy Spirit loves the Son and the Father and loves to glorify them. But he's fully God with a different dimension in a sense, but utterly God as well. So each in the Trinitarian God is glorifying the other, loving the other. There is a, in God himself from all eternity, a profound self-givingness that I can't get my mind around either, but it is extraordinary. 
And with this, we see that the persons of the Trinity are not identical. Rather, each reveals himself in distinct relationship to the others. And they're all delighting in that, the Holy Spirit included. So what, what is revealed in, in this revelation we're looking at takes us up into the eternal God, and we begin to see, wow, this is a God, this is a God that is utterly amazing. This is what our friend in, in, in France is doing as well. He's showing what a beautiful God we have, what, a, what an amazing concept this is, concept proven at the cross of Christ in history. What does it mean, the Missio Dei? What does that reveal about God himself, this engagement with creation and humanity? One text that I particularly like, but this comes through John's gospel again and again, John 5, 20 and on to 23. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it, like Lazarus and others. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Wow. A lot of people want to talk about the God on our dollar bill, but... Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is the exact manifestation in bodily form of who is God. So as we look at the Trinity, we think, well, each person of the Godhead is fully involved with creation. And as we look into the future, even recreation. God loves the world. And that includes you and me. We've been singing about it this morning, haven't we? He loves all humankind, especially those that have turned to him. And it is through the cross that holy God, the moral absolute of the universe, has made a way for us who are not holy to be forgiven, to be reconciled, to be adopted to, as the Eastern Orthodox Church puts it, the triune God, the Trinity, invites us into the Trinitarian Fellowship. That's absolutely astonishing. God made us for that. Here's uh, referring back to Jonathan Edwards, but written by Michael Reeves. The cross stands as the defining moment in God's relationship to all creation, the pinnacle and epitome of all he desires to show us of himself. Listen to this. This cross then is a self-assertion a self-declaration, but one that's less like a political manifesto and more like a proposal of marriage through the cross to us. God says to his people at the cross of Jesus, this is who I am. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. Well, how do we define Trinity? And, And I'd like you to say this with me. This is... I'll say it once and kind of explain it, and then let's say it together. The one true true God eternally exists as three persons, as far back in eternity as you can imagine and beyond. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one essence. They're one God. We're not tritheists. One essence or one in nature, equal in glory, because the glory of God is a shared glory between them. 
You might think the Holy Spirit got the short end of the stick. He didn't. He delights and is equally glorified in the Godhead and distinct in relations. Each is distinct from the other. So I've explained it. Now let's say it together, all right? Let's, uh, with good loud voices together. The one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. Well said. So, as God has revealed himself, that takes us into, into the transcendent, into knowing who God is like. But a lot of people kind of think, well, you get to God finally, and it's all kind of blurry and whatever. No, he's really triune, and that unlocks so much. Jerry McDermott, scholar of Jonathan Edwards, put it this way. The most beautiful pattern of all, and therefore the pattern of all consent and harmony, is God's love among the three persons. By this, Jonathan Edwards meant each person's love and consent to the glory and will of the other two persons and then to the Trinity's design for the creation. Yeah, Trinity is the center of everything, and that directly comes into our lives. There's a beauty there. Second point. So, Trinity and the purpose of life, a deeper call to mission. We're seeing what God was like in himself, as the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. But before the, crea- before the beginning of creation, already the Son was designated as the unblemished Lamb who would come into a world yet to be created. This is a Trinitarian decision. And so we come now to point two. The triune God's mission is made our mission. That is, He, the Savior, and now the Spirit, He has come, we are called. But we need to think a little about what's happening in U.S. culture and really global culture as well. This comes from the Wall Street Journal uh, a few months back. The percent of, these are the values that people say are very important to them. This Wall Street Journal and some other sources as well. From 1998 to 2023, this last year, percent, uh, percent who say value, these values are very important to them. Patriotism. Dropped from 70% to 38%, nearly in half. Religion, 62% to 39%. Having children, nearly 60% to 30%. Dropped in half again. Community involvement spiked a little bit, but then plummeted again. Lower than ever before. What's, what gives value to people as they express it on these polls? Well, money. Money, having nice things, having a nice house, nice car, and all the rest. Wow. So there's an emptiness. Why? Why money? Why not that which involves others? Nietzsche said that all of our values are, as human values in human culture, Western culture, the why is lacking. Take God out of the system and there's nothing, nothing there. By the way, this just came out 10 days ago. This is uh, Pew Research. And now the largest religious group in the country are those who are not religious. They, I'm, not, I'm not part of any religion. We call them the nuns, not, not, not like a priest and a nun. This is the nuns that really mean nun. Um, yet most nuns, even in these polls, it was a little higher, in fact, two years ago, 30% down to 28% now. 
But most, uh, very few are really atheists. There's some. Strident atheists are a dying breed, Richard Dawkins and others. Now there seems to be more an ambiguous openness, but what does that mean? These are the ones that say, I'm not, I'm not in any denomination, I'm not really even Christian, don't believe in a biblical God, I don't think, but I'm nothing in particular. But, but for me, they would say, spirituality. Spirituality is yet important. Hmm, whatever that means. Well, here's a Barna poll as well from this last year. Notice that, according to them, a vast majority of U.S. adults report that they would like to grow in spirituality. Imagine that. So that neighbor who's not a Christian, but, yeah, there's something there. But I want to grow, but I I don't know where to go. So look at that. Even Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers, 75% of our national adult population say they want to grow in spirituality. So Barna puts it, this trend toward spiritual openness represents an exciting opportunity for churches. What might your church do to make the most of it? But I'm afraid spirituality looks a lot like this for a younger generation and maybe for an older as well. We have our superheroes and we identify with the Hulk or whoever else, uh, probably not most of you, but uh, Captain America or ladies, uh, I kind of forget their names, but there they are. But across the world, everyone seeks hope. We yearn for something of the supernatural, which we'd really like to control, have superpowers ourselves. But So the faith and hope in some ways are there, but they have nowhere to go. And so, us. That's what's happening in our nation and many ways around the world. I'm, I've lived 12 years in Sao Paulo, but you've been in Delhi and you've been in South Africa, you know, Johannesburg, so many other places. It looks like this wherever you go. And with that, then, it comes back to us as believers. Many times our lives are, well, oriented more to our own well-being than anything else. I remember visiting, a, I was speaking in a church in, in Washington State, a big one on the west side, and the pastor said, you know, our second generation, our third generation, our fourth generation believers that grew up in this church are now saying goodbye. And he said, we've done everything. We've got these seminars on keeping good care of your health and how to, how to select a, a spouse or whatever else or identity of gender, maybe more, more complex like that. How to have a good marriage, how to have a good sex life, how to succeed in business. We have all of these seminars. But as you begin to go through these seminars, we know, and they're good, they're helpful, but they begin to orient around our own well-being, don't they? The problem of selfish Christians speaks deeply into my life, and there comes, as we focus more on ourselves, a personal emptiness. And that, that flows into the church then, too. Selfish churches that spend a fortune on some things and missions or helping others come to, come to saving faith is uh, some of the churches I've visited in the past have no missions program now. Uh, they don't even believe in the lostness of humanity anymore. Well, our friend cited Blaise Pascal. This goes back to the 17th century in his famous work, Thoughts or Pensees. If man is not made for God, why is he not happy except in God? It's the only place you find happiness. If man is made for God, why is he so opposed to God? 
Well, so we come back to the big question, don't we? How is understanding God as Trinity central to our own personhood and the life of the church? And this steps right into where we need to be. By imitating the triune God, self-giving God, we unlock the very essence, that is the deepest realities of who you and I are as Christians and as churches and for missions. And so doing, you know it because you've shared your faith or shown forth Christ, that brings to us the life-giving power of God. Love what this man says. Evangelism is something intrinsic to the identity of the church, not an optional extra, but something part and parcel of its very being. The church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. Where there's no mission, there's no church. So who God has revealed himself to be in this world takes us into the infinite reality of the eternal trinity. So as we kind of wrap up here, the Missio Dei is the deep personal invitation to every one of us. It is the essential expression of our own faith. I believe in God, then I must be also reaching out in all of this. And this part of the Christian life, we're saved by grace, but this part is the intimate divine calling for every one of you, whether in junior high, whether you're a senior citizen, and everything in between. We're free to say yes or no. And I think even here in chapter 20, here's Mary Magdalene who says, show me where the body is, I'll go get it. She knew she was saved out of darkness. Seven demons were cast out of Mary. But on the other hand is the one who wasn't in that upper room first time around. That is Thomas. We call him the doubting Thomas. He's the empiricist. He's the scientist. He's the professor. Unless I see the holes, I won't believe. This is nonsense. And so when our Lord comes a second time, he confesses, my Lord and my God. He's the great one that says it most clearly now in all the Gospel of John. So obedience to our Lord in self-giving is essential to our being filled with God's life. Here's where it comes home. And we say, Lord, will I give myself unreservedly, well, to you? And how might I do that? What, what should I do? How do I give myself to others in a way that counts for your kingdom and expresses the depths of what I am, whatever my gifts, whatever my age, whatever my training We're called to be imitators of God as Christ was imitator of God. So in the end, the big, big picture is this. Understanding who God is will define why you and I exist and who we are as persons were made in his image and how we may be most fulfilled individually and in relationship to others and above all else to God himself. So... As you reflect on what we've talked about, you have people around you, where do I begin? What person do I need to be more self-giving toward? Loving, but also expressing the gospel. Where should I go, whether it's here or elsewhere? And so, we've seen a past generation, now we call for a new generation. Final line is this. As Missio Dei is the expression of who God is, so Missio Dei becomes the essential expression of faith in your life and mine.
Father, open our eyes to how we might reflect you and obey you and reveal you to others as you have shown mercy to us. In Jesus' name.